All right, well, good morning. Well, as you're saying your hellos, you can get back to your seats. We're actually, as Phil mentioned, we get to get right into the message this morning. Um, as we, we get ready to do that, I, I, I want to give a reminder, you know, when you're starting a book, often the beginning has a lot of importance to it. What's on page one is going to tell you a lot about the story. And when we think about the Bible, when we think about going to page one of the Bible, what does it tell us? The very first thing we encounter is the reality about who God is. God isn't even explained. He's just presented. God is the almighty creator. That's what we learn about him on page one of the Bible. And on page one of the Bible, we also get to learn who we are. And Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says that as human beings, we have the privilege of being the crown of God's creation. We are created in His image. We bear His likeness. We are the most precious thing that He has created on the earth. And all of that reality from page 1 of the Bible gives the backdrop for why once a year, as we're doing this morning, we celebrate the sanctity of human life. We celebrate that as human beings, the way that we treat each other and the way that we interact with each other is hugely important. The Bible is full of commands about how we engage with one another and how we treat each other with dignity because every human being is created in the image of God. That means when we see people dehumanized, like when we think of tomorrow celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, we remember the dehumanization that racism causes And we're pointed back to the reality that the reason that that is so evil and corrosive is because every human being is created in God's image. And part of the way that we respond to that reality is that it means that we look at all human beings, and in particular, human beings who are in danger, and we look to speak up for them because every human being is created in God's image. And when it comes to Sanctity of Life Sunday, often our focus is on the unborn on unborn children who are in danger of being aborted before they're ever born. Because those children are also created in God's image and are of great value to Him. Um, And and I want to say a couple things before we kind of get into the passage that we'll go through. Um, And the first thing I want to say is, I recognize for some of you here, this is a very uncomfortable Sunday. Um, In fact, some of you are like, oh, if I'd remembered that it was that time of year and we were doing this, I might not have come. Um, And and it could be for a couple different reasons. Um, In all seriousness, it may be because this is just a painful Sunday for you because you have an abortion in your past or because you participated somehow or that you pressured somebody to get an abortion. And so this Sunday every year just brings up wounds of guilt and shame. Um, And and what, what I want to encourage you with is at the core, at the foundation of what we believe as Christians and what we believe at this church is that God sent his son to save sinners. So if you are in here this morning with guilt or shame about abortion or guilt or shame about anything, the solution is not to ignore it and the solution is not to justify it. The solution is that we bring our very real guilt and shame to the God of the universe who, thank God, sent his son to pay the price for our sins and cleanse us. If you have guilt and shame about an abortion in your past, or if you have guilt and shame about anything that's weighing you down, my hope is that this is a Sunday where you experience a reminder of the liberating forgiveness and power of Jesus. 
In fact, if, if you feel like this is a big burden for you, I just want to encourage you. Man, we, we, have, we have pastors and leaders here who would love to be a part of any healing that God is inviting you into. So if this does bring up fresh wounds and you realize there's stuff I've never really dealt with, I, I encourage you either find somebody outside afterwards who has a name tag on or just look up all of our email addresses. They're on the bulletin. They're on the website. Make an appointment with somebody so that you can begin to lean into experiencing the healing that God brings through the gospel. Um, but also I want to say some of you might be uncomfortable with this, not because you have an abortion in your past, but you might be uncomfortable because you just think, ah, abortion, it's political. I disagree politically. Maybe, maybe you're saying, all right, did, does this mean that I have to change my party allegiance? Does this mean that I need to vote in a certain way? And, and what I want to say is what, while I understand that abortion kind of necessarily has political implications and that our faith in Jesus should impact the way that we vote and the way that we engage politically, uh, the main way that we feel called to approach this as a church is not mainly politically. And the reason is not because we're afraid to. The reason is because, in many ways, abortion in our country right now is a supply and demand issue. No one is being forced by the government to have an abortion, thank God. So if we all as the people, if no law in the country changed, but if we all as the people just said, you know what, we're going to treat life as precious, we're not going to participate in this, even though our government says that we can, we could put the abortion industry out of business. You don't have to simply think of it in terms of voting, which is important, but we need to think more broadly of how are we, especially those of us who are believers in Jesus, how are we living in light of this reality and how are we making sure that the way that we're pro-life, if we are pro-life, is not simply in a once a year or once every four year vote, but in a whole way that we approach the preciousness of life. Um, what, one of the ways, just so that you know, that we as a church engage with this is we are big supporters of, of a sure pregnancy clinic where there are women, mostly women, men and women, but mostly women who are on the front lines of this, giving care and giving resources to women who are in crisis situations. Um, we know that the main reason women get abortions is it's not a calloused, cold-hearted thing. They often feel cornered and afraid and out of options. And a sure pregnancy clinic helps women in those situations get help, get free ultrasounds, get medical advice, get resources, um, not just during the pregnancy, but far beyond the pregnancy with baby clothes and parenting classes and mentoring is a whole powerful system that they have. I know some of you in this room are involved with it. Um, Asher has a table outside. Part of the calling that God may have for you during this message is that God is going to call you to take some step, either financial or volunteer, to become involved with Asher and be on the front lines of this. But you know, every year when we approach this, we, we try to think about how is God leading us to approach this? There's many angles to talk about this subject. Um, and the angle that we felt called to take on this year is a little bit different. It's less focused on the actual issue at hand when we talk about abortion, and it's focused on an implication of it, and that's that this year we're going to focus on the reality of adoption. Adoption is such a powerful contrast to abortion because in abortion, in many ways, what we say is this human being who really just even biologically I am responsible for I'm going to get rid of so that I don't have to deal with that burden. Whereas the powerful beauty of adoption is us saying a human being that legally and biologically I am not responsible for, I'm going to at great cost to myself sacrifice so that I can be responsible for them. 
And you know, we don't read the Bible and get a bunch of passages that say, Christians, go out and adopt. But what we do get is a powerful reality in the Bible that if you are a Christian, you have been adopted. At great cost to the God of the universe, you have been welcomed into the family. And the implication of that is that adoption is a reflection of the gospel. So we're going to end up going through a passage that's less focused on saying, you as Christians go out and adopt children, as more focused on saying, this is the spiritual reality that we live in, that we have been adopted. So let me share with you, I, I have two, I guess, big picture hopes for what we experience today. And the first, this one, this is for everyone, no matter how old you are, how young you are, wherever you're at. My first hope is this, that what you experience today is a glorious celebration of what God has done for you. That you end up leaving this morning celebrating the reality of who now you are, what your status is in the family of God because of your adoption. And my second hope for this morning is that God is going to move in us in different ways to show us how he's calling us to reflect this reality. To say to the world around us, we want them to know the glory of the love of God poured out through adopting us into his family. And we reflect that when we make sacrifices. Some of you may be called from this Sunday forward to begin actively praying about if God is leading you into adoption. Some of you are going to be called in other ways that may be parallel to this, to, to either support people in that or to begin to live in ways that you are practicing what it looks like to include people who would otherwise be excluded. We want to respond to this gospel reality and put the gospel on display for the world around us. And so we're going to get into our passage now. If you have a Bible, please open up. Or if you use a Bible app on your phone, you can open up to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and that's going to be our passage for this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be up here on the screen behind me, and you can look at them as I read through. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. And let me just let you know, it's going to be real simple what we're going to do in walking through this passage now. There's going to be three things that we see as we walk through. We're going to see what we were, what it cost, and what we are. We're going to go back and say, before God adopted us, what were we? Then we're going to look at what it cost for God to adopt us in the family. And finally, we're going to look at what we are now that we've experienced that adoption. And so we start in verses 1 through 3 with what we were. 
And we're jumping into the middle here, but we'll kind of catch up. Verse 1, Paul writes, What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. Now, if you were to go back and read Galatians 3, you'd see that Paul is kind of building to this idea. And one of the things that he's been talking about is he's been talking about the purpose of the Old Testament law. Because the Galatians are sort of wondering, are we still supposed to obey all these laws? If not, what was the purpose of this? Um, and even for some of us in this room, you might be thinking, all right, I've read the Old Testament, all the laws about diets and the laws about sacrifices. But what is the point? If we're not still supposed to obey all those laws today, what was the point of those? Was that just God's first attempt? And then he was like, ah, that didn't work at all. Let's try something different and I'll send my son. And Paul's answer is, no, that's not at all what was going on. The law was good. The law was necessary. But the law was a step used by God to prepare us for the fact that we needed a savior, to show us that we needed a sacrifice for our sins, to show us that we needed to be cleansed, to show us that we needed somebody to come and save us because we couldn't save ourselves. And so he's, he's paralleling that here. And what he seems to be drawing on is, is still that idea of the law. He says, all right, somebody can be a son in the household, but before they come of age, they still would kind of look like a household servant. They still might look like a slave. So he's painting that scenario, seemingly still talking about the Old Testament law. Then he says in verse two, the heir is, kept, is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So the first picture he paints is, all right, so, so imagine you could be a son in the household, you could even be the heir, but you could still be living in a practical way that makes you look like a slave. Now, before I read verse three, let me give you a quick warning here. Paul in this passage seems unconcerned with sticking with one metaphor. As I read through, you might've even picked up and said, now, wait a second, did, did he just mix metaphors? And my take is, yeah, he mixed metaphors. Paul is just going to throw at us a bunch of different images to help us get this spiritual reality. He doesn't feel compelled to stick to one analogy because he begins with the idea that you might, be a, you might look like a slave even though you are a son, and then he just seems to move on to the idea of slavery in general and what it takes to get out of it. And so in verse 3 he says, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. This is who we were before adoption. We were slaves. And what he specifically says is we were in slavery to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, which is actually, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult word and difficult phrase in the Greek to translate. Um, the, this phrase only shows up four times in the New Testament. All, the, all four of the times, Paul is the one who uses the phrase. It's used twice here in this chapter, and then it's used twice in Colossians chapter 2. And there's debate about what this means, because even as you read that, you might say, elemental spiritual forces, I don't know what we, are, are we talking about angels? Are we talking about demons? What are we talking about here? And there's debate about what this phrase means. But what I think he's getting at here is sometimes this phrase was used just to refer to the basics of reality. That you haven't moved on yet to maybe more sophisticated, nuanced stuff. This is just the basics of reality. In fact, sometimes the phrase was used to refer just to the alphabet. If you're teaching somebody something new and they don't know anything about it yet, you might say to them, I'm teaching you the ABCs of this. And that seems to be the sense of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, before our adoption, we were enslaved to the ABCs of life. We didn't yet have a savior, 
We were just trying to figure out life. And, and the law kind of functioned in that way for the Jews, that it was like, all right, it gave them some basics. It, it helped them to understand that there was a God and that they owed that God something. And so there were sacrifices and that there were standards to live up to, but they were enslaved. They hadn't been set free. Now, the interesting thing is that Paul doesn't just use this phrase to refer to the Jews and the law. He uses this phrase in chapter 4, verse 9, just a few verses after the passage we're going through, and he's talking to the Gentiles about their lives before they came to Jesus. Now, they weren't under the law, but maybe what Paul means is this. Gentiles, before you were adopted into the family, you weren't enslaved to the law, but you were enslaved to idols that you worshiped because all you knew was the ABCs of the fact that there was something divine and you owed something to that something divine. Before you were adopted into the family, you lived in the reality that there were certain standards you were supposed to live up to, you had a certain morality that you adopted, but you didn't have any power to live that out. Before you were adopted into the family, you knew that you were supposed to have a purpose for your life, but it was up to you to make up that purpose and to figure it out on your own. And just even for us in this room, as we think about ourselves, there may be some of you that the way that you grew up, you grew up with a lot of religion, whether it was Christian or or something else, and, and you grew up in the reality of just, all right, there is a God, and I owe God, and I'm not living up to that God, and so I need to work really hard to live up to that God. That is slavery in a certain sense. And you might be like, yeah, that's slavery. I don't want any of that. And so some of you lived in a different reality. You grew up with no religion, No rules and none of that, but what you lived in instead was the slavery that you had to determine the purpose of your own life, and you are not up to that task. All of us were in slavery before God acted. And nobody wants to be a slave, but before moving on, I I just want to pause and say, you know what? There might be some of us in this room that you say, you know what? Being God's slave, that's good enough. It's more than I deserve, more than I deserve being a servant of God, that's going to be enough for me. I'm not going to try to pursue some super close relationship where I'm walking with him and hearing his voice. Just being a slave of God, that's enough for me. In fact, there's a story that Jesus told about somebody who had decided that being a slave was going to be good enough for him. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. And if you know it, the way the story unfolds is that there's this son who says to the dad, I don't want to wait for you to die, I want my inheritance now. Dad gives him his inheritance. He goes out and blows it all on wild living. He runs out of money, so all his friends leave him. And he realizes that his best bet is to go back home to his father. And on the way home, he begins to strategize in his mind. And he says, there's no way, there's no way I'm getting back into the house as a son. I've blown that chance. So I'm going to go back to dad and say, will you just let me be a household servant? That's better than nothing. That's three meals a day. That's a roof over me. That's some security. Being a slave in the household is better than nothing. But if you know the story, you know, even though the son was going to be satisfied with being a slave, the father wasn't going to be satisfied with him being a slave. He said, you're not going to be a slave. You're going to be a son. You're going to be an heir. You're going to be welcomed back in with open arms. And there might be some of us, again, there might be some of you in this room right now that you think, you know what, it's, it's good enough. It's good enough just that I know that I'm going to heaven. It's good enough that I, that I know that the, my sins are forgiven. It's good enough to live at a distance from God and he's the master and I'm the servant. And what I want you to know is that you might be satisfied with that. God is not satisfied with that. 
You are not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter in the family of God. And what we get to look at next is what it cost to make that happen. Verse 4 says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the idea here is that Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, took on human flesh. He became one of us so that he could save us. And specifically what it says in verse 5 is to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And this is where Paul, if it is a mixed metaphor, he's broadened out. He started with, well, the whole idea that there might be a, a, a person who's really a son, but he looks like a slave. And now he's just talking about slaves and saying, you know how a slave gets out of slavery? Somebody buys them out of slavery. Somebody pays what's owed so that they can be set free. That's what redemption is. That's what it means to be redeemed. Jesus came to pay the price to get us out of slavery. And the price was his sacrificial death on the cross. You have been adopted into the family, and you know what it cost? It cost God the Father, his beloved son. It cost the son a torturous death. And the more that you're willing to spend shows how deep the love is. Let me just talk again about adoption for, for a minute. My, my best friend and his wife um, went through the grief of not being able to, to conceive and dealt with infertility and the grief that that brings. I know some of you in this room have dealt with similar grief over that. And so they began to pursue adoption. Um, and it was interesting because I got to walk with my friend through the process. And, and again, some of you know, it's a very involved process. It's often a very expensive process financially. And so you're saving money and then maybe you're getting family and friends to help you with money or you're figuring out ways to raise money because it's very, very expensive to do. And not only is it very, very expensive, it can just be emotionally exhausting because I got to watch as my friends got close a couple times and thought, we are about to get a kid and then went through the grief of having the, the rug pulled out from under them and having to start over. Um, j- just to fast forward, because I'll talk a little bit more about this, God has blessed them with two kids that they've adopted. But man, I remember walking through that process and it just made me think more about it. And, and as you think about adoption, there's really, as far as I can see, there's two reasons why you would adopt. They're related to each other. Two reasons why you would adopt. Broadly speaking, one of them is you would adopt because of what it does for the child. And the second reason is you would adopt because what it does for you. You might adopt because you look at the fact that there's a child out there that doesn't have a family. And your heart and and compassion goes out to them. And you say, you know, if you have kids or if you think about your own life and you say, gosh, I've had the privilege of growing up with a mom and dad and I've seen what that experience and my kids are growing up with the privilege of having a mom and dad and having a stable home and there's a kid out there that doesn't have that and my heart goes out to them. So I want to make sure that that kid has a home to grow up in. So out of deep compassion over the benefit that it brings to the child at great cost to yourself, you decide to adopt. And the second reason why you might adopt is not just because of what it does for them, but because of what it does for you. And just to explain what I mean, what I don't mean is that you look around and you say, there's a lot of work to do around this house. (laughs) We could use another set of hands. 
Um, th- this was a couple years ago, but I, I had my, my three sons. We, I was talking to them about chores they were going to do because there were some adjustments. All right, here's what you're going to do now. And it, it had to do with yard work. And all right, you're going to mow the lawn now. That's going to be your job. You're going to do the leaf blowing in the back. That's going to be your job. You're going to do the raking. And I laid all out what the jobs were going to be. And then one of my sons, and, and he was mostly joking when he said this. But as I laid out all the jobs, what he said was, huh, must be nice. And what he meant was, must be nice to be the dad, to have a bunch of kids that you can order around to do all this work. And I, just, I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of, yeah, we're really coming out ahead on this one. I mean, you got to be kidding me. The amount that we have gained in a practical level from all of you versus what, it, it's just, it's not comparable. And if you're a parent, you know that. You don't have kids and you don't adopt a kid because you're like, I'm going to end up receiving more than I give. You know you will give more than you receive. So you don't adopt because you're like, this is really going to make our lives easier. But you might adopt because you say, I have love that I want to share. And I want somebody else to receive that love. And that's what I saw so much with with my friend and his wife as they were going through this. It wasn't that they were saying, my life is going to be easier. Their lives are not easier now that they have these two adopted kids. Their lives are harder. But they get to share their love with those kids. Just think about, we're, we're talking about the God of the universe right now. We're talking about page one of the Bible, the God who spoke and things started to exist. That that God, first of all, says, I want to bring benefit to that person who is far off. That sinner who is not really useful to me, but is going to be left all alone if I don't at great cost to myself do something. You are adopted because God decided to benefit you. But you know you're also adopted because God is love and God is determined to share that love. We get into the family of God Because the almighty God of the universe determines that he has love and that love is going to be shared. So even though we're not terribly useful to him, he wants us in the family. What we were was slaves. What it cost was the sacrifice of the Son of God to pay our slavery price and to set us free. But now verses 6 and 7 tell us what we are. This new reality that we live in now that we've been adopted in the family of God. Because you are his sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does several things for us, he emboldens us. He teaches us, he empowers us, he reminds us, he comforts us, he does all kinds of things in our lives. But one of the things that he does that Paul is highlighting here is that he confirms our adoption. He is the proof that we really are children of God. In fact, he says here in this passage, and he says something similar in Romans 8, the spirit who is now in our hearts calls out Abba, Father. What he seems to be saying here is that the Spirit now makes it natural for us to look at God and know that He is our Father. Abba is the familiar Aramaic term for Father. You can almost hear the word Papa in there, Abba. The familiar way that you would cry out to somebody that you know is your dad. 
And I don't know, I remember this happening to me when I was a kid, but any of you ever been around a kid that gets separated from his parents? You know, like in Disneyland or in a mall or something? Um, and just the panic that goes through. So, so here's what, the child does not look around and say, there's a bunch of adults here, any of them will do. <laughs> when a child is separated from their parents, what do they cry out? Mom, dad, mom, dad, mom, dad. They don't have to be told, they don't have to have somebody come up and say to them, you should probably try to find your parents, they'll help you. They know. And then if the parent comes back into view, the child doesn't have to be told, that's your parent, you should go to them. A lost child who finds their mom or dad after being separated from them, they run to them instinctively. They know at a gut level, that's my mom, that's my dad. And what Paul is saying here is the Spirit helps us at a gut level know that God is our dad. And that we can cry out to him. And that when you're in a situation, which some of you may be this morning, you might be in a situation where you're like, gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. I need so much wisdom in my life. I don't know what I'm going to do. We're dealing with trials. We're dealing with uncomfortable situations. You know what you get to do? You get to cry out, Father, I don't know what to do. You're going to have to help me in this situation. It means when you're filled, when you're racked with guilt and shame over things that you've done in your far past or even in your very recent past, that you get to cry out and say, Father, I'm filled with guilt and I'm filled with shame. I don't know what to do about this. I need you to give me your mercy and grace and help in my time of need. It means that when you're excited, when life is good, and you're experiencing the goodness and the blessings of God, then you get to cry out and you get to say, Father, thank you so much for all of this. Thank you for all of your good gifts to me. You get to cry out to God, not as a distant deity, but as a father that you know you belong to. Although that said, we might have doubts. Just as an adopted child in a family might be plagued and, and tempted to have doubts, to say, all right, I'm here, I'm in the family, but am I really equal with the natural children? Or am I a second-class citizen? I mean, am I more of just kind of a servant or a mascot in this family, or am I really of equal status to the true children? And part of that is because I know, at least for me, when I think of God having children, we know that Jesus is God's son. It's not hard for me to believe that God is pretty happy with Jesus. I mean, did everything that the Father asked him to do, sacrifice his life on the cross, they've eternally been in fellowship. It's not hard for me to believe that God the Father has great affection for Jesus. But there are times where it's pretty tough for me to think of God having similar affection for me. But you know what would help an adopted child know that they belong? If they found out that they had exactly the same inheritance as all the other children. Verse 7 says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And this is a little bit tough. You might be like, an, an heir to what? God's not going to die and leave me something. You know what you're an heir of? You are an heir of everything that belongs to God. You are an heir of eternal life because life is all bound up in God. You are an heir to the forgiveness of sins because God is the great forgiver. 
You are an heir to the Holy Spirit who now dwells inside of us. You are an heir to all the treasures in heaven. You are an heir to all the victories of God. Think, think of it. If you were an heir to somebody and they won the lottery, would that be good for them or good for you? Both, right? Like this is great for you and great for me. Because everything that belongs to you also belongs to me. Every victory that God wins, every power that God has benefits us because we are heirs of the living God. Man, we may have been slaves, but thank God that he sent his son at great cost to himself so that we could be brought into the family as adopted sons and daughters and heirs. And that is why we come back to this reality. Adoption is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus. And, and I said before, even if there's nothing else, man, I, I want every person in here to be able to walk out of here this morning knowing and celebrating what God has done for you in Jesus. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to know that what you're invited to when you're invited to become a Christian is not to join a religion. You are invited to go to God and say, God, will you adopt me? And guess what? The answer is already yes, because he's already done everything that it takes to welcome you into the family. I want us to be able to walk out of here celebrating that, but I also want us to be able to walk out of here realizing that we have a calling to reflect the gospel to the community around us. When we live out the reality that I'm going to benefit others at great cost to myself, we put the gospel of Jesus on display for the world to see. And I believe in a room with this many of us, just because of how closely tied adoption into the, is to the gospel, I believe that there's some of you in this room that God is going to call you to step by faith into adoption. That God's going to lead you through a process where part of how you're putting the gospel on display is that you are welcoming a child or welcoming children into your family, children that you have no obligation to, but that at cost to yourself, you welcome in so that they can have the benefit of having a family and so that you can experience the joy of having the love that God has put in your heart spread to them. Some of you are going to have that calling. Some of us are going to be partners with those who have that calling. But you know what all of us have? All of us have the calling to look around us and see the people who are going to be left out if we don't at cost to ourselves do something about it. We're called around, we're called to look around at the people, maybe socially, they're gonna have no one. Maybe they have difficulty socially, they're socially awkward, or they just have some things about them that make them left out. And maybe you even know, you're thinking right now, yeah, I know people like that in my life, and if I befriend them, if I start spending time with them, it's going to cost me. It's going to cost me the discomfort of spending time with them because it's a little bit uncomfortable. And it may also cost me some other friends that don't want to spend time with me if I'm spending time with them. Thank God that he came to us when we were far off rebels and not simply when we were pleasant company. One of the reasons that God calls us to be generous is because that is the opportunity for us to take something that is of great cost to ourselves and benefit somebody else that we don't owe that money to. It's not generous when you pay a bill after you've had a meal. It's generous when you choose to give somebody that legally you owe nothing to so that they can benefit from what God has given to you. 
Adoption is a reflection of the gospel because it lives out the reality that we freely give so that others will benefit from what God has given us. And as we get ready, we're going to get a little, to have a little bit of time just to reflect prayerfully on this. And what we're going to get to do next is that the worship team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. Now, some of you in this room, you have gone through the adoption process. You've experienced it. And one of the families in our church that has been through the adoption process is Andy and Lori, uh, Laura Watson. And Andy, of course, is our worship pastor. And through the adoption process, they have got to see God work in their family and in their lives. So what we're going to get to experience now is the band leading us through a song that Andy and Laura wrote about their adoption and about what they experienced with God through this. So use this as a time to listen, to reflect, to celebrate, and also to ask the question, God, what are you calling me to do in response to the great goodness you've shown in adopting me. I'm going to hand it off to Andy, and he's going to walk us through what we're going to get to experience.